Hey everyone, good to see you. Hey to everybody who's watching online tonight, we love you. Or maybe you're watching later on this week, we love you, we miss you. For everybody who's gathered here tonight, so good to see you. About 30 miles and three towns away from the little town that I grew up in in northern Iowa, there is a steakhouse. That is, I know this is hard to talk about at 5.30 at night to start talking about dinner, but there's this steakhouse. Here's a picture of the outside of the building. Started in 1920, a hundred-year-old steakhouse that to this day serves the best steak that I've ever had in my life. They serve these Greek style broiled steaks. Here's what the filet looks like. Take a look at this. I mean, just drenched in butter and I mean, cooked a perfect medium rare. And this steak is so good that when I was a kid, you had no choice but to wait for it. They didn't take reservations when we were kids, so you would have to drive from our house 30 minutes away to this restaurant. And then when we got to the restaurant, we'd put our name on the list, and sometimes we'd have to wait 30, 45, 60 minutes for a table. And so you'd be sitting there waiting, sometimes make a quick target run or something, waiting for your name to get high enough on the list. And then you'd finally get a table, put in your order, which it didn't take long to order because you already knew you were ordering that. And then you'd wait another 30 minutes for the steak to come out. And while you were waiting at the time, there was only the first floor, you'd look up above the door of the kitchen, kind of constantly waiting for somebody to come out. And every time you saw a plate comes like, is that mine? Is that mine? Is it finally mine? And above the door, there was a sign that said, good food takes time. Like we needed to be reminded of that at every moment as you're salivating, eating all of the bread and butter that you possibly can as you're waiting for this steak to come out. And there's some things that are just worth waiting for. There are other things that are not. We would never do that with McDonald's. We would never drive 30 minutes, wait 45 minutes to an hour in the line, go through, and then wait 30 more minutes for that burger to come out. Now, maybe the new In-N-Out burger that's opening up across the street, if you saw the building when you're coming in, maybe I will wait 45 minutes in that line for that first round of burgers to come out. But there are some things that are worth waiting for. There are other things that just simply are not. And there are other things that we just have no choice. We have no choice but to wait. And oftentimes, it's actually the most important things, the most significant things in life that we have no choice but to wait for. We find ourselves in a place where we just have to wait. But the trick is, is that when we know what we're waiting for, we actually know how to wait. When we know what it is that we're waiting for, we then know how to wait. And the way that we wait actually matters. The way we wait for things is actually a reflection of who or what we're waiting for. The way we wait is a reflection of who or what 
we are waiting for. This is our last week in the book of James in this series called Walk This Way. And as we've said over and over again over the last several weeks that James, by history, is the half-brother of Jesus. And he becomes the leader of the church of Jerusalem after Peter. And he leads the church through some incredibly difficult times as they are facing poverty and persecution and all kinds of things that are coming against them as a church. And his letter is just packed full of wisdom, packed full of James's insights on how do we live as followers of Jesus when life is hard? How do we live as followers of Jesus when not everything is as we want it to be? How do we live as followers of Jesus when things are not as we believe they are supposed to be? Last Sunday, Pastor Glenn opened up this fifth and final chapter of the book of James, and we get a picture into some of the things that the church is facing. And he opens those first couple of verses with this severe indictment against the rich who are oppressing the church, that those who are wealthy and in power in the city of Jerusalem are actually oppressing the church. And James, in the middle of this, he says to them, says to his congregation that their judgment, those who are oppressing you, their judgment is impending and their demise is inevitable. And you can almost hear this sort of like tornness from the people that are listening. It's like, well, that's great, but what about now? But what do we do now? What do we do in the midst of what we're facing at this point? We're experiencing injustice now. What do we do, James? What do we do in the midst of this situation? And as James unfolds this passage, he talks about this situation, but he talks about so many others. He talks about what do we do when we face persecution? What do we do when we face injustice? What do we do in the midst of suffering? What do we do in the midst of sickness? What do we do in the midst of the sorrow that we experience when someone we love goes sideways in their faith? What do we do in the midst of those things, James? And James says this, James chapter five, verse seven, he opens this last section of his letter and he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, you must be patient as you wait for the coming of the Lord. You're like, really, James? Like, that, that's what you're gonna say right now. Like in the midst of all that the church is experiencing, he's going to say, oh, just be patient. It almost sounds like if we just read it at that level, it sounds almost patronizing, doesn't it? It sounds like what we experience as children or maybe what we do as parents to our children when we want to teach them like those cute little songs of like, be patient, be patient, don't be in such a hurry. When you get impatient, you only start to worry. So remember, we have these like little songs. Like, I can't sing. I'm sorry. That's like maybe the first time I've ever sang in public, like on a microphone. I'm not sure that was actually, that got recorded and everything. Dear Lord, help me. But it almost sounds dismissive, doesn't it? It's like, James, like this is a little insensitive to what we're, we're experiencing. But if we read carefully, that's not actually what James is doing. See, what James initially does is he wants to clarify for the people of God what we're actually waiting for. Because when we know what we're waiting for, then we know how to wait. But we have to first clarify what is it that we're waiting for. We oftentimes think in the midst of 
of what we're experiencing in life that we're waiting for is we're waiting for justice. We're waiting for relief. We're waiting, we're waiting for healing. We're waiting for restoration. We're waiting for intimacy. We're waiting for security. We're waiting for peace. We're waiting for this answer to prayer. But what, Jesus, what James says here is, no, 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 no. We have to be first and foremost clear about what we're waiting for. We're waiting for Jesus. That this is what we're waiting for. We are waiting for Jesus to return. Because it's actually in Jesus that we find the full fulfillment of all of those things. All the other things that we're waiting for find their fulfillment in Jesus and in Jesus' return. It's when Jesus comes back that we actually experience all of those things to their full. See, it's Jesus' return that is the substance of our hope as Christians. We say it oftentimes in our liturgies that Christ has died Christ is risen and Christ will come again. And when he comes again, we'll experience bodily resurrection and new creation. At that point, when Jesus comes again, oppression will end. Suffering will cease. Disease will disappear. See, every trial has a terminus. And that terminus is the return of Jesus. Then when Jesus comes, every trial ends. And James and the other New Testament writers tell us over and over again that that day is coming near. But we are often like, yeah, not as near as we would like. <laughs> the church for 2,000 years has been waiting for that day. And the New Testament keeps coming back to us and tells us it's near, it's near. It may not be in our lifetime, but it is near nonetheless. And that confidence as Christians, as followers of Jesus, that Christ will return it is what strengthens us as we experience all kinds of trials. And that reality that Jesus is coming again determines how it is that we wait. When we know what we're waiting for, then we know how to wait. And so James goes on and talks about the way we wait for Christ's return. He says this, James chapter five, verse seven, says, consider the farmer who waits patiently for the coming rain and the fall and the spring, looking forward to the precious fruit of the earth. You also must wait patiently, strengthening your resolve because the coming of the Lord is near. Consider the farmer. See what James tells us is that we wait with the patience of farmers. This is the way that we're called to wait. I grew up in a small farming community in Northern Iowa. And when you experience, I wasn't a farmer, I was a town kid, don't know anything much about farming, but I watched farm life unfold all around me. And a couple of things that I know to be true about farm life is that paychecks don't come every two weeks. It's not this sort of reliable, consistent kind of thing. Instead, what farmers do is they do everything they can all spring to prepare their fields. And then they plant and the harvest is months away. And they're waiting for the rain. They're waiting to see if the sun is gonna come out. But they, what they don't do is they don't plant in the spring and then go and sit on their porch until the fall. 
They don't just say like, oh, okay, so what patience is, is just being passive, just sitting on the porch, waiting to see what happens. But instead, farmers continue to work. They tend to the crop. They tend to their fields. They continue to put their hands to work. They're facing the potential of droughts and flood and hail and mold and pests and weeds. They're worried about water and nutrients and pH levels. They're thinking about all those things and their patience is not passive by any means, but they work the weight. They are proactive and productive. That the way that we wait for Jesus is with the patience of farmers who knows that there are certain things that are out of our control, but they go ahead and they put their knees in the dirt and their hands in the soil anyway. And they get to work. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Glenn said that really one of the things that we see from James is the encouragement to ask ourselves, where is God at work in the world and how can we participate in that? How do we get to work? This is what it means to wait with the patience of farmers is to know that there are things that are out of our control that we have to wait for. And yet we don't wait passively. We wait proactively. We get to work as the people of God. He goes on and he says this in verse nine. He says, don't complain about each other, brothers and sisters, so that you won't be judged. But look, the judge is standing at the door. Notice how many times he comes back around to Christ returning. And then he says, brothers and sisters, can you hear the affection? How many times he says, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of patient resolve and, st and steadfastness. See, he says that we not only wait with the patience of farmers, but we wait with the courage of the prophets. See, sometimes when we think about patience, we equate patience with silence. You know, when you think about kids that are waiting for something, like our ideal of a kid waiting is like a kid sitting down, sort of demure on a chair, their hands folded and their lips buttoned, just waiting for whatever's gonna come, you know, whatever cupcakes are gonna come out of the oven or something. And we think of patience as silence and stillness, sort of hands folded and mouths shut. But the, the prophets are anything but silent. The prophets are people who speak. The prophets are not people that acquiesce to injustice. The prophets don't bury their head to what's going on in the world. They're not sort of turning a blind eye to what the pain and the suffering of what's happening around them. They don't find themselves sort of saying, how can we maintain the status quo and just get by? If you don't believe me, read the book of Amos. He's filled with these sort of prophetic speeches about what's happening in the world around him. The prophets are people who speak out in the name of Jesus. And as a result of their proclamations, it didn't always end well for them. It didn't go well. And James here actually creates this contrast between prophetic speech and complaint. So there's actually a difference. Don't complain but instead follow the way of the prophets. And one of the ways that we tell the difference between prophetic speech and complaints is who we're speaking on behalf of. Who are we speaking on behalf of? See, what the prophets do is the prophets give voice to the voiceless. They speak for Yahweh on behalf of those 
who are marginalized and disempowered and neglected and suffering. This is what the prophets do. They speak in Yahweh's name and they speak messages that go along with Yahweh's aim. Everything that they say and everything they do aligns with Yahweh's character and Yahweh's kingdom, what he's trying to do in the world. But what they do is they then step into that gap and oppose the powers of the world with the power of God. They stand in that place. They lend strength to the disempowered and call oppressors to repent. And that usually costs them something. That's what prophetic speech is. Complaint, on the other hand, usually gives voice to ourselves. Rather than giving voice to someone else, complaints usually give voice to ourselves or those who are like us. It's us speaking in our name for our aims, for our comfort or for our control. It's even willing to participate in the powers of the world as long as we can have things our way. Usually there's something in a complaint that it's about our desire to retain or our, our strength or maintain status quo or keep things as they are. Usually in complaint, there's something for us to gain. And he specifically here in this context particularly cautions the church about complaints against one another, which actually seems a bit odd to me. That here they are, the church, facing all of this persecution, facing all that they're facing. And he says to them, he says, hey, be careful not to complain about one another. It seems a bit odd to me. I would think that their complaint would rise up to the people that are causing them all the trouble, right? That their complaint would be directed that way. But instead, what happens is that there's actually a temptation in the midst of trial to attack one another. See, when we're facing difficult times, our tendency is to project our frustrations on one another, to make assumptions, to lump motives, to level accusations, especially when we disagree about how it is that we're supposed to respond to a particular situation. We have all of this going on and we're not all going to agree about what is the right way forward. And the temptation is in the middle of that then is to forget what is actually going on, who the actual enemy is and begin to attack one another. And James over and over and over again in his letter is very careful to call our attention to the negative potential of the tongue to undermine Christian community and Christian witness that it's our tongues that get in the way so often of our unity with one another and our mission to the world around us. In difficult times, like those that we're facing now, it's critically important that we're aware of the assumptions that we're making and that we actually go to one another, check those assumptions with one another to fight for unity, to fight for community. We're gonna find ourselves frustrated and hurt and confused and disappointed. And in those moments, it's so easy to just walk away. And I think what James is encouraging us is no, talk before you walk, lean in before you leave, lean into community, lean into those conversations, have the talk with the people you need to have the talk with, fight for unity in the midst of things because Christian community and Christian witness matters and the temptation is for us to turn in on ourselves during this time. He goes on and he says this, look at how we honor 
those who have practiced endurance. You've heard of the endurance of Job and you've seen what the Lord has accomplished for the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Most important, my brothers and sisters, never make a solemn pledge, neither by heaven nor earth nor anything else. Instead, speak with a simple yes or no, or else you may fall under judgment. We wait as the people of God with the integrity of Job. If you know the story of Job, Job experienced prolonged suffering and profound loss. And those that were closest to him in the midst of that time encouraged him just to curse God. Say, forget it. Abandon your beliefs, abandon your convictions, abandon your faith. There's nothing in this for you, so give up, Job. Like, just walk away. And Job said, no. Job refused. See, the other thing about patience is patience doesn't compromise. Patience isn't willing to take shortcuts. It's not looking for a quick way around what it is that we're waiting for. What happens is that impatience often manifests itself in our speech. James here is talking about swearing an oath, which is the idea of invoking God's name for one's own benefit. There's a temptation to sort of appeal to the heavens to invoke God's name to make things go faster or easier. But really, that kind of speech can be, be manipulative. It can be duplicitous. It can be unkind. At times, it can even be defensive, that we can defend a position by holding up Yahweh's name and attaching his name to something that he actually has nothing to do with. So we have to be careful in our speech. And what happens is that sometimes when, our, when we're impatient, we'll start using our words to try to get around something or try to obtain something to move beyond what it is that we're called to wait for and use our speech to try to obtain it for ourselves. And when that doesn't work, Impatience begins to manifest in our actions. If our words don't work, we will often resort to force. See, we said earlier that patience isn't silent. Patience is also not violent. It doesn't take shortcuts. We do not find justice through injustice. We do not find relief through revenge. This is why the people of God, we've always supported things like peaceful protest, but we've always said things like rioting and looting and burning and doing those kind of things is not actually the way of God in the world. That we're called to speak up for justice, but we seek justice in through means of justice. We seek justice by waiting on Jesus and by continuing to maintain the way of Jesus while we wait for the return of Jesus. So we can't wait for the return of Jesus in a way that actually opposes the very person who we're waiting for. What we're waiting for should match how we wait. Then he goes on and he says this, he says, if any of you are suffering, you should pray. If any of you are happy, you should sing. It's like the one line in the middle of this. It's like, oh, by the way, there are some people that are happy in the middle of all this. But just in case you missed it, we're going to go back. Oh, yeah, if you're sick, then you should call on the elders of the church. And the elders will pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. This is a longer passage here. And he says, prayer that comes from faith will heal the sick 
for the Lord will restore them to health. And if they've sinned, they will be forgiven. For this reason, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. For the prayer of the righteous person is powerful in what it can achieve. Elijah was a person just like us. And when he earnestly prayed that it would rain, there was no rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed again, and God sent rain, and the earth produced its fruits. We wait as the people of God with the faith of Elijah. James is really clear here to say that, hey, Elijah, he's just a person like us. He's not a superhuman He's not a super follower of God. Elijah is a person. If you read Elijah's stories, it'd be really clear. Elijah's got his own struggles. He has his own issues. He has things that he is dealing with. Elijah is a person just like us, but we're called to wait with the faith of Elijah, which is the faith to ask God to pray bold prayers that while we're waiting, we still pray, Father, deliver us. Father, alleviate this. Father, heal this. Father, help us. Father, come. And while we wait, we pray again. And then we pray again. And then we pray again. And we ask and we keep asking and we knock and we keep knocking and we seek and we keep seeking, trusting that our Father is the one who gives good gifts to his kids. He's the one who gives good gifts to us. All the while trusting his timing, which may be the hardest thing to do. The trust that his timing is right. Says now we have the faith to ask God to pray bold prayers. We have faith to ask for help. Faith to ask the elders, to ask those that are in our lives to pray with us, to pray for us, to advise us, to help us, to give us wisdom. James encourages us to trust the spiritual leaders, the mentors and the counselors and the people that God has placed in our lives to have the faith to ask for help. And he says to have the faith to confess, to actually confess our sins one to another. So what confession does is it safeguards us in the midst of the waiting from normalizing or self-justifying our own sin and recognizing that we have our own part to play in this, especially sometimes when we find ourselves being tempted to take our own right to our own way to achieving what it is that we want or obtaining what it is we feel like that we're waiting for, confession brings us to the place that it even recalls to us the sins that we make in the waiting, the sins that we might even commit in the name of justice. It reminds us that we've been forgiven. And as the people of God, we're called to forgive. That we wait by extending forgiveness to one another and to those who have hurt us. Last passage here, he says this. It says, my brothers and sisters, if any of you wander from the truth and someone turns back the wanderer, recognize that whoever brings a sinner back from the wrong path will save them from death and will bring about the forgiveness of many sins. That's how James ends his letter. 
But I think what James is trying to teach us here is that we wait with the persistence of Jesus. And we wait with the persistence of Jesus. See, patience does not give up, especially on one another. Patience does not give up, especially on the people that are important in our lives. And James reminds us that Jesus is the one who leaves the 99 and goes after the one. That Jesus is the one who comes after us. And Jesus is the one who continues to pursue us. And so we continue to pursue one another even when someone goes sideways in their faith. Even when we see someone wander, even when we see someone walk away, we remain persistent and patient in prayer and grace in love and forgiveness to one another. Friends, what we're waiting for is Jesus. We're waiting for his return. And what James wants us to hold on to at the end of his letter is the encouragement to wait with the patience of farmers, to wait with the courage of the prophets, to wait with the integrity of Job, to wait with the faith of Elijah, and to wait with the persistence of Jesus who is constantly coming for us. Tonight, we normally would come at this point in our service to the table and wait at his table together. Uh, but as you know, there were no communion elements because all of the ready-to-eat, prepackaged uh, communion elements are in back order due to all the churches around the country that are in the same boat that we're in. So for those of you who are watching online or watching later, you can grab your communion elements. But for us who are here in the room, what we're gonna do tonight is we're gonna go ahead and pray a prayer of confession. It's one of the things that James encourages us to do, to confess our sins to one another. And then we're gonna take a moment and we're gonna pray a bold prayer. Whatever that prayer happens to be in your life today. And maybe it's asking for help while you're waiting for something. Maybe it's praying for a loved one who has wandered from the faith. Maybe it's praying for healing for yourself or for someone else. Maybe it's praying something that you've been reluctant to ask God for. Maybe it's praying another bold prayer for something you've asked God for a thousand times as just a way of showing that your continued faith and continued patience in his timing. And then we're gonna sing together and sing, our, sing in the midst of our waiting. But let's pray this prayer of confession. Then we'll take a moment of silence for you to pray your bold prayer. And then Aaron will lead us out in song. Let's pray this together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Jesus, we are waiting for you. We are waiting in your grace, in your mercy, 
and in your forgiveness. And as your kids, as your daughters and your sons, hear these bold prayers we pray tonight. Help us to pray them with the faith of Elijah. 